Welcome to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast, featuring sermons given at our church and community center located in the Lincoln Estates neighborhood in Gainesville, Florida. If you find these messages beneficial, if you're part of our community, or if you want to help support the services we're providing to Southeast Gainesville, you can text the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 to make tax-deductible donations. Here's this week's message. All right, um, let me start today by asking you uh, to reflect on how's your Sabbath going? I wish we were in person so I could get some actual feedback. But hey, I'm watching the comments. So if you're on Facebook, put in the comments. How did you get some Sabbath practice in? Did you do something you enjoyed? Did you take a day or some time to just rest and do something that you like? And and to take the burden off, to take the load off? Um, If you did, tell us what you did. Uh, and, and if not, I hope you'll try again this week to get some special time, some set-aside time to enjoy yourself and to build some Sabbath habits into your life. That's what we talked about last week. You can go back and watch that if you didn't get a chance to watch it or watch it again if you need a refresher already. Uh, but today we're in Jeremiah 21 through 25. And I want to start by reading this passage in chapter 24. Look at this. Uh, starting in verse 1, uh, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, the first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs. The good figs are very good, the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. I share that to begin this morning because... We're going to talk about two different tracks that we can take. That we find here in this passage of Jeremiah and that we also find in the life of the church where we are right now. And I think this is an, this is an apt vision that Jeremiah has. Because we've for a long time thought that the, the one approach that we're going to talk about was, was had some bad spots in it. You know, like you, sometimes you get an apple and it's like, well, it's got a spot in it or a bruise. I just, like, I'll cut that off and, and you know, eat the rest of the apple. And we, we like, well, we take the bad with the good. We just kind of avoid the bad for what's good. And I want to suggest to you um, that this is a better vision for where we're at. That it's not like the life of the church that we have right now is an apple with a bad spot or two on it. It's like a bad fig. There are good figs and there are bad figs. Now, if you know me well, you know I'm not a big either-or kind of guy. I love the both-and. I want to find the both-and to every question we can. Um, But what we're going to talk about here, what I think we see in this passage, Jeremiah, is not a both-and. It's an either-or. And it's either good figs and they're very good, or they're bad figs and they're just unedible. And they just have to be thrown away. Um, I think that's where we are. So let's back up. Uh, in Jeremiah 21, in chapter 22, he says the same thing a couple of times. I want to show this to you. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 21, he says, Say to the royal house of Judah, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Then in chapter 22, he says almost the same thing. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. 
For if you are very careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. Now let's pause right there. If this is what God cares about, um, taking care of those who have been oppressed, taking care of those who have been robbed or extorted or exploited economically, and we'll see this more directly in a passage in a moment. If what the Lord cares about is, is doing justice to, to foreigners in the land, resident aliens, undocumented immigrants, illegal immigrants, if that's what God cares about, if God cares about orphans and widows, if God cares about the shedding of innocent blood, people like Breonna Taylor or George Floyd, then much like ancient Judah, we're in real trouble in this country because um, we're checking off all the boxes of the things that make a place become a ruin, according to what Jeremiah is saying here in chapter 21 and chapter 22. We read on. Verse 13, he says, Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. And that prophecy is directed to the king of Judah, in this instance in Jeremiah. But I want you to pay close attention to the part I put in bold. You stick it right back on the screen. Um, he says in verse 16, Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. He did what was right. He did what was just. He defended the cause of the poor. He defended the cause of the needy. And that is what it means to know me, declares the Lord. That's one of the most profound statements in all of scripture. Jose Miranda says that both Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah take it for granted that to know God and to do justice to the needy are the same thing. Walter Brueggemann says it this way, it is not asserted that knowledge of God leads to justice, nor conversely is it claimed that social justice leads to the knowledge of God. They are the same. One might, on the basis of this text, conclude that the practice of justice is the very reality of Yahweh. In this text, we are very close to the contemporary conversation about praxis as the mode of faith. In the most radical terms, this poetry anticipates John Calvin's judgment that right knowledge of God comes through obedience. The practice of justice is the source of well-being is what Jeremiah is prophesying both to Judah and to us. The knowledge of God and the practice of justice are the same. The knowledge of God and the practice of justice are the same. 
Even John Calvin says this, that right knowledge of God comes through obedience, comes through doing justice, comes through taking care of those who are in need. That is a profound statement, but that's not a statement that sits well with our practice of church. We have not been taught by and large in the church in America that um, that's how we come to the knowledge of God. We've been taught a very different kind of thinking and practice by, by many of our leaders uh, across the church spectrum who have both lived lies and who have taught lies. So we'll see more of that here going forward. Uh, look what Jeremiah says starting in, in chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Let's skip down to verse 9. It says, concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. He goes on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. I'm going to read a little bit more to you. Verse 25, he says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? 
Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. That's a lot, and it's strong language, and I felt like you needed to hear all of it. Um, Jeremiah's charge here is that the prophets are both acting immorally and they're teaching falsely. They're both living lies and they're teaching lies. And those two parts are interconnected and they're inseparable. They're living out lies, they're committing sins, they're committing adultery, and they're also proclaiming lies. They're not teaching what God is giving them to teach. They're teaching what they're making up and declaring to be from God. By doing that, they're leading the people astray so the people don't even know who God is anymore. They're confused about the nature of God. They're confused about the nature of the covenant that God has with Israel. They're confused about how they should be living and what they should be doing because their leaders are teaching lies as well as their living lies. They're morally false and they're theologically false. And they were teaching people that this covenant with Yahweh was transactional in nature. That they had entered into this, into this contract with God and that God would always take care of them and bless them no matter what they did. It was a transaction. There wasn't a relationship in their teaching. And what God is saying here through Jeremiah is you've gotten this wrong. This is not a transaction. This is not a quid pro quo. This is not a guarantee. This is a relationship. And if you're going to abandon the relationship, then then you've abandoned the relationship. And you need to understand what that means. But they did not understand themselves in relationship with God. And similarly, in the church today, we don't understand understand ourselves to be in relationship. We give a lot of lip service to being in love with Jesus. But the things that I've been talking about to you now for gosh, a year or more, this nexus of relationships between us and God and us and each other and us and creation and us and our own selves. We, we haven't been taught that by and large. I wasn't taught that growing up. I was barely taught that in seminary. I had to go looking for it. And some of you that have been long-termers in the Gainesville Vineyard, you're ahead of the game in some of this respect because Artie and Jackie did such a great job for many years. But the church in America, by and large, has not been taught that this is all about relationship. We've been taught that it's all about transaction. Salvation is about transaction. The whole thing, theology, is about transaction. It's about getting the right answers. And that has led us into a very dangerous place. Look at this quote. This is Thomas Overholt uh, commenting again on the teaching in Jeremiah that I just read and how it relates to Deuteronomy. Look at this. He says, Deuteronomy 29 also makes the point that such a person, described as a poison root within the community, may well feel that he is secure in his actions, 
When he hears the words of the curse, he blesses himself in his heart, saying, Peace, shalom, will be to me when I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The following verses make it quite clear that it is the content of these prophecies of peace which condemns those who utter them. They are uttering these prophecies of peace, and they are convincing people who are stubborn in their heart against the commands of God to justice to to continue in their stubbornness. They felt so secure in their blessing that their stubbornness was sanctified. Do you, does that sound familiar at all? Anyone you know sanctified in their stubbornness of heart? Refusing to learn or grow or wear masks or socially distance or admit truth or admit when they're wrong? This is where we are. This is where Christians are in America. We have, we have sanctified the stubbornness of heart through false teaching, through widespread false teaching in the church. Um, and it comes because just like then, we think we've had all the answers. We, we've had these teachers give us all the answers, like in apologetics, I'm thinking specifically. Like we've got this whole thing figured out, we've got all the answers. We have to stop trusting church leaders who give us all the answers. Because if someone's just feeding you all the answers and explaining everything to you how it is so that you don't have any questions, that leads to that self-assuredness, that self-reliance, that stubbornness, and that being proud of being stubborn. That's transactional. That's not relational. My, my hope is that when you listen to me talk, you don't come away with answers. I don't want you coming away with answers. I want you coming away scratching your head. I want you to come. I want you coming away asking questions, asking better questions. I, I love it when someone's like, "Hey, um, uh, can can you can you recommend a book to read?" Yes, I can recommend a book to read, and then three more. This is what it looks like to grow and and to walk deeper and deeper into faith. It's not about finding answers. It's about asking better questions. Answers are transactions. Questions deepen relationship. Do you see the difference? Overhaul goes on. These people, these prophets, they're guilty of turning the people away from the living, powerful, effective God and causing them to place confidence in points of dogma or other deities, which by comparison are wholly ineffective and unsubstantial in character. These answer people that, that Judah had and that we have, uh, they lead us into a false understanding of who God is. We think we've got salvation figured out. We think we've got theology figured out. And that leads us to anemic practice and leads us to a misunderstanding of God is because God can only be known through the practice that we've largely abandoned as a way to know God. So, of course, I'm thinking, as many of you are, about Rabbi Zacharias, who we've learned, you know, horrible things about just in the last few days. And I don't want to dwell on, on that specifically or, 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 or say anything more about that. I don't really have anything to say about his specific sins other than that they're tied to the teaching. See, it's not just that he had a moral failing on one hand, but was teaching good truth on the other hand. No, he was teaching half-truths and falsehoods and was being intellectually dishonest for years. 
and his intellectual dishonesty and his moral dishonesty go together, the same as it did in Jeremiah's day. And it's not just Zacharias. We've seen this with Bill Hybels. Um, one of the most influential uh, theologians for me was a man named John Howard Yoder, who was a pacifist Mennonite theologian who taught at Notre Dame. And I've read all of his books, and, and was, he was deeply influential on my own development. And then I found out later on that he had engaged in just the most horrific things. And then I had to sort back through everything that I had learned or thought I had learned and read and realized that his false living was also tied to false teaching. That even teaching that looks good and, and seems helpful and, and helps us grow, that when it's tied to that sort of moral uh, failing, that it's also there's also failure in the teaching. They're not separable. It's not like a bad spot on an apple. It's a bad fig. That's the picture that I want us to have today. And it's not just a few bad apples. It's not just, you know, Zacharias and Bill Hybels and Yoder. I mean, there are 4,300 Catholic priests in the U.S. That, that are documented to have been sexual predators. And we don't have a specific number, but everyone who has any expertise, like church insurance companies, tell us that the number among Protestant churches is higher, significantly higher, than among the Catholic Church. It's harder to count because it's all spread out, and so much of it is hidden. And so much of it is hidden because churches make excuses and cover up their leaders. Because, like, well, the leader's doing good things. It's one of the things Zacharias told one of the women, like, if you, if you, if you tell anyone what I've done, you, you'll risk sending people to hell because I'm doing all this good work over here. So he's lying about the work he's doing to protect the sin that he's committing. And we see this over and over again where leaders get protected and victims get silenced because the abuser is doing work that is too important to, to wreck or to, or to ruin because it's all become a transaction. The victims can be sacrificed because what this leader is dispensing is, is considered to be so good. But what that leader is dispensing is false because it's based on a false life. And those are not separable. Because at that point, we've lost the thread that this is all about relationship. And a leader that can engage in that sort of abuse of another human being and not understand that the relationship with that person is tied to the relationship with God and the relationship with themselves and the relationship with creation, that that whole nexus grows in health or in unhealth together. It's not separable. It's not, you can't tease it out. It goes together all the time. That's what it's about. And that's why I keep going on and on about this. And what I'm telling you is that we are in a spot where we have got to radically relearn who God is and what it looks like to live out the Christian faith because so much of what we've been taught, so much of what we've been exposed to is false. There's so much rampant sin in the church, in church leadership. There's so much false teaching among church leadership that we've got to radically relearn everything. We've got to completely abandon this transactional 
way of thinking and living and understand that that nexus of relationships is what it's all about. And then our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and our relationship with creation and our relationship with our own selves are intertwined and interconnected and inseparable. And if we find leaders that are abusing people, then that person doesn't have a healthy relationship with God or themselves. And they can't possibly teach us what God is like because they don't know it well enough. And so I know that's harsh, but this is where we are. And it's not about one person. We've seen this over and over and over again. And it's because for all of our denominational differences and all of our and all of our like, you know, liturgical differences, the basic fact of American Christianity is we've made it a transaction and not a relationship and not a nexus of relationships. We've tried to act like the things are separable, like in my relationship with God, separate from my relationship with my family, separate from my relationship with other people. No, it all goes together and it can't be separated. Look at Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and deal wisely, and will administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. One of the things I find fascinating there is the, the, the last or the next to the last king that Judah had before the exile was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah is Hebrew for the Lord is righteous. And what Jeremiah is saying is here is we're not going to have the Lord is righteous anymore because that's separate. The Lord is our righteousness is relational. Zedekiah, that's transactional. The Lord is our righteousness, that is relational. And of course, as Christians, we see this as a prophecy about Jesus. This is pointing towards Jesus. Uh, Jewish folks would see this as about um, the, the growth of, of the synagogue culture and how uh, uh, Judaism flourished as a faith uh, in exile and was much better off for having this experience of going into exile. But for us, this is about Jesus. And what this means is that for us to understand Jesus we have to understand all of this as relational, not as transactional. And this is the real irony is that we ought to understand that because Jesus came and had friends and had meals and spent a, a lot of time building relationships and the whole thing was about relationships. And yet we've made that into a transaction. We've made the life and the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus into a transaction. We make communion into a transaction over and over again and we have to relearn that and we relearn that by what we read before the knowledge of god the practice of justice are the same the practice of justice is the source of well-being we have to relearn who jesus is we have to relearn what it looks like to be the body of christ to be the church so I want us to, at Gainesville Vineyard, at the bridge, have as a commitment that we're going to be a no transaction culture, that no part of what we do is going to be about transaction, whether that's 
in the preaching or in the sharing, um, whether that's in how we raise money, whether that's the stuff we do with the community center at the bridge, nothing is about transaction. I mean, I guess we have to pay for things. We we'll have to figure that out. But everything needs to be done relationally and nothing transaction as much as we possibly can. I want that to be one of our core commitments that we ask ourselves whenever we do anything. Is this transactional or is this relational? Is this helping us sow the truth that we live in this nexus of interconnected relationships? Or is this making it seem like we're buying and selling and trading off? I want us to push that as far away from ourselves as we can. So what does that look like? How do we go about building a no transaction culture, a fully relational culture for ourselves as a church and as a community center? We'll have to figure that out together. But here's the first step. This is this is this is the Lent challenge I have for you. I was listening to a, a Brene Brown podcast the other day. I shared it with you with all of you on the on the private Facebook page. If you didn't have a chance to listen, I encourage you to. And uh, it was a statement was made. I don't know if it was Brene or her guest that said it. Um, said love is spelled T-I-M-E. I thought that was really good. And if we're going to press into relational, not transactional, and specifically relational in our understanding of who Jesus is and who God is, then the way to do that is to spend time with God. Um and one of the best ways to spend time with God that many of us don't practice is silence. Thomas Keating says that silence is God's first language. Everything else is poor translation. So here's my Lent challenge for you. I want us, and I'm going to do this too, and this is new for me as well. I haven't done this before, uh, like I'm going to try to do it for Lent. I usually try to fast from food for Lent, but I'm not doing that this year. I, I feel I feel like this is the way to go this year. Um, I want you to... If you will, you don't have to, but if you'll join me um, in in developing the ability to sit in silence, like really sit in silence. I'm not talking about like devotional time or meditation time or I'm going to listen to worship music time. All those things are fine and good. I'm not knocking any of that. I mean literal stillness, like find a comfy spot and sit still and don't fall asleep for a set period of time and just sit there. I'm not telling you you have to like empty your mind, your thoughts are gonna come and go, but just sit and be still and wait and see what the Lord might say to you at some point. So here's the challenge. I want you to start start with two minutes. Do it for two minutes. Um, do it alone. Um, and, and, and I'm hoping we can add time as we go. My goal is to get to 30 minutes uh, a day by the end of Lent. I'm going to work myself up and I'll, I'll invite you to, to, to grow in that with me. Uh, but, but, you know, you get to a level that you can handle. And I'm not sure I can handle 30 minutes. Uh, but let's start with two minutes. For the first week, let's do like two minutes a day and, and just see what happens. And if you've got kids, I would invite you to uh, have the kids participate maybe like one minute uh, at a time for the kids and, and see how they do it. But, but literally stillness and silence, like turn everything off for the set period of time and be still. Because if we're going to relearn who God is, God is going to have to show us that. 
If we want to re-understand Jesus, that's going to come through direct revelation. And the Lord's going to speak to you, and the Lord's going to speak to me. And then in community, we can compare and see. And, and Jeremiah, I didn't read this part of it because I read so much already. But Jeremiah goes into this like, yeah, the Lord will speak to you, and you can share with each other what you think the Lord said, and that's okay. But none of the, no more of this, thus saith the Lord. No more of this, I had a dream and it's this way. Stop it. That's what he says to the prophets, because they're lying. And they're just trying to um, sell their prophecies. Um, anyway, I've said enough about that, I guess. So God will help us to rid ourselves of transactional theology and dig deeper into relational understanding of who God is. If we'll spend time with the Lord. So that's my encouragement to you. As for Lent, as my challenge to you is to is to grow in your ability to sit in silence with the Lord. And some of you do it already and are ahead of me and you're like, oh, that's that's cake. Well, okay, but some of us have busy, noisy lives and we're going to try. So if you will do that with me, um, I think the Lord has good stuff for us through it. So that's my message for today. I know it's pretty heavy. Uh, the text itself is pretty heavy, and we live in a heavy moment. And there's so much more that, that could be said and, and maybe should be said. But I really uh, believe that we're at a moment where we have to rebuild from the ground up. Our understanding of who Jesus is, who God is, what it looks like to be in relationship to him, and healthy relationships with each other and with creation and with our own selves. And there's so much wisdom and knowledge that the church has held at bay because we were committed to transacting in our falsehoods that we were calling truths that we need to embrace. Like our relationship with creation, we can learn a lot from climate science, which the church has rejected, um, again, out of a need to continue selling its own wares. But I hope we're up for this. Because this is what has to happen for the church to move forward from this spot that we're in. We're not in a different place than Judah was in Jeremiah's day. It's that serious. It's that severe. But if we'll sit in silence and listen, the Holy Spirit will speak to us. If we'll go about the work of justice, we'll learn who God is. Through the practice of justice, through silence and prayer and digging into relationships, we can reimagine what it looks like to be the body of Christ in and for our world today. Let's take communion, speaking of the body of Christ. This is not transactional. I know so often in so many varieties of church culture, this is like the epitome of the transaction. But I hope that you will take what you've got to eat and drink with me, not as a stand-in for a transaction, but as a stand-in for uh, a meal of thankfulness, a Eucharist that we would share together if we were in person and not separated by quarantine. Because this is supposed to be a meal, a celebration meal, a meal to say thanks a meal to commemorate and deepen the relationships between us, between us and the Lord. 
This is the meal he shared with his friends. This is the, the night when he's like, look, I'm not calling you followers. I'm not calling you servants. I'm calling you friends. This whole thing is about friendship. Properly understood. So, grab whatever it is you have to eat. And let's take this together. This is the bread of heaven. The bread of friendship. Let's say that. The bread of friendship. And the cup. The blood of Jesus, as you consecrated, same as me. This is the cup of love. I look forward to the time, hopefully soon, when we can spend more time together and grow more in love with each other, more in relationship with each other. And like this bread and this cup has to stand in for that meal. This live stream has to stand in for our time together in the meantime. But this is the cup of love, the cup of God's love for us and our love for God, our love for each other, our love for our own selves, our love for the world around us. Let's take the cup of love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this message would land well with those who hear it that folks would not feel shamed or belittled that anyone who has been the victim of abuse by church leaders or in church settings would not feel like the point was being made at their expense but that we would come to understand how pervasive the culture of abuse is and has been in our churches that it's not one or two bad apples it's not a, a bad spot on, 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 a, on an apple that we can just avoid the church is shot through with this Lord we cry out for the victims so many victims children, women and men who should have been safe who should have been safe in the care of people who said they were following you and loved you and loved them but were shockingly abused we pray for their well-being and their recovery and let us pray that you would help us to do the hard work of coming to understand that that abusiveness is not separable from the teachings that came alongside it. The teachings of people like Ravi and, and Yoder are as much a lie as the lies that they covered up their adulteries with. And I pray that you would help us to be healed from the residual ways of thinking that they have left us. They have given us a false picture of you. They have given us a skewed picture of our community and of ourselves. And help us to start over again and hear from you directly as we wait in silence for you to speak to us, for us to learn who you are 
through doing justice, taking care of those in need. You say that in Jeremiah and you say it again in Matthew 25. And we care for those who are hungry or thirsty or sick or naked or in prison. We're taking care of you. Jesus, may we meet you again and again in those who are in need. And may we learn who you are through them. I pray that you would free us. You would rid us of all, all transactional theology. All ways of thinking about you or community that's based on um, buying or selling or checking off boxes or having answers. We would come to understand the whole of it as relational, as this interconnected nexus of relationships in all of its complexity, in all of its beauty. Thank you for my sisters and my brothers. Lord, may we be together again soon. Bring healing to those who are sick and suffering. Bring vaccines to everyone as quickly as possible. May we reimagine ourselves as your body and as a community that's built on relationship, not on abuse, not on transaction, not on authoritarianism. Make us over anew. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right. I love you. I challenge you to sit in silence. Now, Lent starts on Wednesday, so you can be as noisy as you want today, tomorrow, and Tuesday. Um, and I'll, I'll send out an email or something and, and remind us all. But I hope you'll do this challenge with me. And I hope we can grow together. In, in our ability to sit in silence and receive from the Lord. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast. For more information about our church and community center, including our food pantry, life skills training, legal aid, after school and sports programs, and international missions, and how to contact us, visit GainesvilleVineyard.org or find us on Facebook. Our page name is GN Vineyard. We also have original worship songs available on iTunes. Just search for Gainesville Vineyard. You can support the work we're doing by texting the word GIVE to 352-562-7771. All donations are tax deductible. We appreciate you listening to this message and pray the Spirit speaks directly to you through something you've heard today. God bless.